Can I start us off with a, a story? <laughs> yeah, I would love to. I would love to hear a story. So I was coming home, and I've been really distracted uh-huh. lately. And uh-huh. I, I get out, out of the elevator. I walk um, down the hall. I live all the way down the hall, mm-hmm. and my door was unlocked. Oh no! And I open the door, and there is uh-huh. a freaking crazy-looking guy lying right in front of my door. I have no idea who this is. Wait, 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 like on the, on the inside of your apartment? Like, like right in front of my door, his, his, like I opened the door and hit his foot and I Uh freak out. I back Uh up. I'm like, who are you? And he's like, Uh who am I? Who are you? And then I look up and I'm in the wrong apartment. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Chris. I got off on the sixth floor. Oh, wait, what floor do you live on? I'm on the eighth floor. And, oh, my gosh. And that's how distracted I've been. I was on my phone. I was like looking at work emails, and I just got off on the sixth floor. So I just ran away. I didn't even say sorry. I just ran away. All right, let's get into it because we have so much to talk about because so much, you know, like we're both just hungry uh, content consumers. I mean, we're always just Mm -hmm. looking for stories and stories. And sometimes we go through dry periods where nothing is Mm -hmm. going on and we just are just bombarded with Trump, Trump, Trump. Uh, But this was not one of those weeks. We've had so many good stories, so many good podcast episodes movies that come out i mean it's just um manna from heaven for us um Mm -hmm. so let's get into it so what have you been reading and listening to what's on the top of your mind liz oh my gosh so many good stories but i just want to talk about two really quick that Mm -hmm. i really loved so uh the movie hustlers came out last weekend i heard so much good stuff about it yeah it was I did not expect to see it, but I did, and it was way better than I thought it would be. Um, but the article it's based on an article from New York Magazine that came out in 2015 called The Hustlers at Scores. And so that piece kind of like made the rounds again in uh, because the movie came out. Okay. Uh, I, I missed it somehow in 2015, but a friend sent it to me, and it was just fascinating. Just a fantastic piece. It's about this group of strippers in New York City who decide to start fleecing their Wall Street clientele through both legal and illegal means. Um, And it focuses on one of the ringleaders um, named Rosalind Keough, who is this Cambodian-American woman in New York City and how she got into the business and like how their ring worked and um, how they eventually got caught. But it just it brought up such interesting questions around morality, like is it is being immoral to immoral people justified mm. um, and capitalism? And it draws these like very striking parallels between what these strippers are doing with these Wall Street bankers at night, mm-hmm. but also and and what these Wall Street bankers do all day. Right. Right. Um, but then the two are treated in such different ways. That's so compelling. So, yeah. So it was like this like breathless read. But it also brought up like these really interesting questions that I really, I really enjoyed the piece. Okay. So that's one of the things mm-hmm. that people should look up. It's called The Hustlers at Scores. It's from New York Magazine, 2015. And how do you feel like the movie? Did, how do you think the movie did in terms of kind of distilling all of that? I thought the movie captured the piece really well. Okay. Um. Like, again, like you know, I I thought it was just going to be a campy movie. 
But then I was like, oh, this movie actually has some like very thoughtful things to say about like materialism and gender and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the criticism that I read was that it didn't get enough into those things. But I feel like it was trying to do a lot in terms of like be a fun, campy movie and also be like a kind of social commentary. So I can I get that like maybe there wasn't time to do all of it. But overall, I was like, yeah, I I, I left like pleasantly surprised. J-Lo was really good. She's getting um, Oscar buzz. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like I I've I respect her as like a star, you know, as like a for like what she does you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like she's not like my go-to in terms of music or movies but like she was so compelling and she just made the whole thing look effortless i was very impressed with her wow um and then just like watching this movie about strippers from a female gaze instead of a male gaze was like palpably different Mm. like it was just i mean obviously it's a stripper movie but like it the the it never felt like lecherous Mm -hmm or seedy in the way that most movies that have strippers in them do. You know what I mean? Like there's no camera work, like scanning up and down like their body parts or whatever. Like it just, it it felt like it was, you know, it was depicting them as whole people, mm-hmm. um, you know, with like stories and lives and feelings and complex emotions and all that. And like the camera work also, I thought did like a, it was really well done. I thought in that way. All right. Um, yeah. And then there's like all this other fun stuff too. Like there's a delightful cameo in the middle and like Cardi B and Lizzo and Lizzo's flute make appearances. As if you didn't need more to kind of sell this movie. Yeah. Lizzo's right. flute. Oh, and the, yes. And there's a Fiona Apple song that features very prominently in it. So anyway, that was one thing that I really loved from this week, that piece. And then the second one was um, the last episode, the bonus episode of the last season of Revisionist History, which is a podcast that you and I love um, because it is hosted by the one and only Malcolm Gladwell, mm-hmm. who has his share of critics for sure, but he is a dynamite storyteller. You can't take that away from him. You know, He's an excellent storyteller and that's what he is. Exactly. Exactly. That's his. That's what he. That's what he does. Um, and he is just as good in podcasts as he is in print, which is infuriating. Ugh, so mad. Um, yeah. But the bonus episode was an excerpt of the of, from a chapter of his book that just came out, and it's done not as an audiobook as much as it is like a podcast. So there's like instead of like people. Instead of him narrating everything, he actually is like excerpting interviews and clips and stuff like that. Um, And it is this like riveting story about um, it starts with the Cuban refugee crisis in the 90s and how the Cuban government shot down these two American civilian planes in international waters and like the fallout from that and how a person who worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency thought something about the timing of it all was very suspect. So started digging around to see like who might have been involved in all of this on the American side. And it is so compelling. Like, I think like the interviews that he got, like he just happened to land some like really interesting people for interviews, but also he just really knows how to draw out a story and even like take a break in the middle for this like social psychology lesson. But I just, it was like as good as like television. I was just completely riveted. So um, yeah, I highly recommend the, the bonus episode of Revisionist History from this season. It's called The Queen of Cuba. Anyway. So those were just two of the things, the stories that I was like so excited about this week. How about you? Um, I listened to 
the daily, which is, you know, quickly climbing up my favorite podcasts of all time, just because just what they do, you know, especially for people on the go and just the kind of condensed stories in a very mm-hmm. like clean and direct way. I just love what they do at the daily. And they had um, the two New yeah. York Times reporters that broke the Harvey Weinstein story, Jody Cantor and Megan Tui. Um, and they had them, mm-hmm. um, it's like a, they're devoting two parts to the whole Harvey Weinstein thing. I, I listened to the first part. I'm still working with my way through the second one. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. we think we know the story. And just to hear them kind of flesh it out even more, um, I just thought was mm-hmm. incredible. And they have, I think the thing that really caught my ear was they, they cover the, the central figure in the, in the story is Lisa Bloom, who uh, is the lawyer who represented Harvey Weinstein. And she yes. used to be um, an advocate for women. And uh, yeah, she used to defend victims. victims. And so based on that, yes. the, the inside knowledge of, of that work, she, she uses that to defend Harvey Weinstein. And I'm just, I'm just, what the heck? How does that happen? Yeah. Like morally, you know? And and the memo that they read. Yes. Where she like bullets exactly how she's going to leverage that experience to his benefit is astounding. Like here's how to discredit the women. Point number one. Yes. Point out that they're yes. like, you know, emotionally unstable. Like all the stuff that comes out uh-huh. and hit headpieces and then and then use a different publication than the New York Times to do this. And it's so like strategic. And I think that kind of ties in when the Harvey the Weinstein story first broke, I just kind of followed headlines. I wasn't like all that tied to Harvey Weinstein or anything. So it wasn't a story that really I know it like launched Me Too and everything. That is very, very important. But something about this podcast episode really drew me in. And I realized that I lately I've been just following all these stories that have this common thread of just the misdeeds of the rich and famous. Hmm. And just that they live in this different universe, this different moral universe where the rules hmm. just clearly don't apply to them. And yeah. I'm just, I'm trying to name why I'm fascinated by it. I just kind of feel like they've stopped being human beings almost. And they're just almost mm-hmm. like aliens. And I'm this just curious anthropologist almost being like, what? So if if you, if you don't apply by our rules, then what rules are you going with? So I'm talking about Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about Jeffrey Epstein, who ran like mm-hmm. a sex ring that, you know, I think in the coming days and weeks, we're going to find out who was involved in all that. Um, I think mm-hmm. a couple of episodes ago, we talked about Donald Sterling and like what kind of mm-hmm. like seedy person he was. Yeah. Do you do you think your fascination with these stories is like the same that like everyone seems to have? Right. Because it is a thing. Right. Like there was like a whole show when we were growing up called like the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Right. Like people are generally mm-hmm. fascinated with rich and famous people or do you think there's more to it than that that's like unique to you you know what i mean or like your own social location or what? yeah i i think i'm not fascinated as i am like how deep does this feeling of disgust go mm. it's almost like what happens when you remove all the rules mm, yes 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 and what uh-huh. do human be human beings become yeah and this is what they become so what is it about these stories for you that just is fascinating? Because you, you also shared the Donald Sterling thing with me. 
and that hit uh-huh, hit it on uh-huh. the head as well. Yeah. I share everyone else's general fascination with the rich and famous and the people who live, who are humans, but just live in a different, completely different set of like moral, you know, rules and norms like we've been talking uh-huh. about. But I also think that as the child of immigrants, I've, I just think I am fascinated by old money because it is completely foreign to me. Mm. Um, like I remember in college being really fascinated by fraternities and sororities, not that I wanted to join one, but just like, what is this like society that has existed for generations? And in some schools is like the backbone of not just the institution, but like your social status for the rest of your life. Right. Like if if you look at parts of the South, like, what is this? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, and the, your use of the word anthropologist like really resonates with me. I'm like, I am a complete outsider to this world of like old white money. Mm-hmm. Like, what are your social mores and how does this work? Like, it's it's a real like fascination as an outsider, yeah. I think. Yeah. And so I think in the same way, that's part of what the what draws me. Like I am, it's like this, you know, I have one generation behind me here in the States. Like every, like my parents don't like, nothing has been handed down. You know what I mean? Like my parents, what they have is like what they have. They earned it. Like, I don't know what it's like to have generations of money and power behind me. And so when I see people who have that, I'm like, what is that like for Mm -hmm. you? You know, it just is a curiosity, I think, about something that's different. Yeah. No, and I think um, bringing in that, because I'm also a first, uh, or I'm a son of immigrants, and so I think that brings in a other another kind of uh, spin on it. Very sobering, but also I think it's a good thing to keep in mind. Um, I mean, but there's there's just, I mean, like, yeah, I could just keep going because there's just been so many stories, yeah. so many podcasts, so many movies, so many things coming out. Another one that actually hit, um, that caught my eye this week um, was the, so SNL. So I've always been a kind of a, you know, fascinated with SNL. So this week they hired three new cast members. Uh, one of whom is Bowen Yang, who's like not the first uh, Asian American, but I think the first Chinese American cast member. Yes, and he's so funny. He's so funny. I am so thrilled. I, I'm actually hire. not as familiar with his comment. I saw him on in the Sandra O oh episode um, where they're like, "Oh, we yes. finally have an Asian guy. We have to do a Kim Jong Un." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we have an Asian writer. Let's try right him out now. right this now. Is it. This is our chance. Um, yeah, and then he's yeah. going to probably be pegged to be Andrew Yang in this upcoming election cycle. Um, that is, I had not thought about that, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> so it was over quickly overshadowed by the hiring of Shane Gillis, uh, where they dug all of a sudden all the way back to 2018. I know they really had to dig. On these publicly available podcast episodes. They really had, I mean, it was investigative journalism at its finest that like got around their vetting system. Uh-huh, but all the way back in 2018, they found this like publicly available podcast <laughs> where he's just saying like heinously racist things about Asian mm-hmm. people. Um, oh, and also, also gay people and also Muslim people and also Jewish people. Just a real cornucopia yeah. of hatred. Just, yeah. And like in the name, and it wasn't a, it wasn't part of any kind of edgy, you know, stand up sketch. He was just Mm -hmm. talking with another comedian. Um, and you know, I, I, you know, it's like, it took the whole luster off of Bo and Yang's moment, Mm -hmm. you know, which is so sad. Yeah, it is sad. And we can like really just talk about this for the entire episode. But I think, um, the thing that we really wanted to talk about, um, was that Andrew Yang, the presidential candidate, um, came out 
and he made some curious statements about this, basically, because um, I think Shane Gillis uh, in that in that found clip, like was saying some derogatory things towards Andrew Yang specifically. Um, so now that Andrew Yang has his platform, Andrew Yang, you know, came out and basically did this whole, you know, like, yeah, it wasn't a, a great comment, but I feel like as a society, we should forgive him. Like, I don't think he should be fired from SNL, which he eventually did get fired from SNL. And he did this whole like, you know, like we need to be above the fray kind of thing. And yeah, it really, you know, I follow and you you and I both follow a lot of Asian American um, writers and thinkers. And it just rubbed the community the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's what caught my eye about this whole story. There's like obviously different angles we can take to it. But this is the one that like really kind of caught my eye. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be an, a nice opportunity to just talk about Andrew Yang because you know, he is running for president. Yeah. And despite, you know, it's not likely he's going to win the nomination or, you know, uh, get to that stage. But, you know, he's already, you know, polling high enough where he's on these debate stages where a lot of, you know, better longer term politicians have fallen off. Yeah. So, you know, and he's capturing headlines in a way that other, you know, even the people on that stage, you know, he's probably top five in terms of the support and the kind of media headlines that he gathers. Mm-hmm. So he isn't some insignificant blip in the radar. Mm-hmm. And I think it's funny because I am all about Asian American community and I'm all about seeing advancement and I'm all about representation and, you know, good things happening for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, I'm, I'm wondering why I'm not enthused at all about him or his candidacy. And I don't know if you feel the same way. I do. And I find that very curious and interesting because we're both like all about Asian Americans and trying to, you know, build up this community. So I don't know, like um, maybe we can start there. Like what, what do you think about his candidacy and, you know, why do you think you're not, I don't know, enthused by it? Yeah. I mean, okay, let's start with, let's start with what I like about it. I do think it's cool that an Asian American person is running for president and has made it this far. Um, and hit, you know, the central, like the main feature of his platform is universal basic income. And I think that's something that's really important to talk about for the reasons that he says, right? Like so many jobs that are like the bread and butter of our society are going to be automated out of existence in the next few decades, maybe even few years. Mm -hmm. So we need to talk about what we're going to do to care for all those people who no longer have viable income. Right. So I'm glad that universal basic income, which was like even a few years ago, considered like a very socialist, very like off the table option, even for Democrats. Like Hillary Clinton said that she had a a proposal for it, but like she couldn't make the numbers work. So she even ended up cutting it out of her platform. And that was only like, you know, three years ago. But now it's like part of this national conversation. And I think that's good. Right. Mm. Um, But I am not excited about him because for many, I mean, aside from the fact that he and I have a number of policy differences, I do not like the way in which he has leaned into stereotypes about Asian Americans and is kind of making them his brand. Like math, Asians are great at math. What's the best way to counter Donald Trump? An Asian who's good at math. And then there was the line at the debate where he very clearly and in a rehearsed way was like, I am Asian, so I know a lot of doctors. So, yeah, let's listen to that clip 
of him saying that in the debate stage. And this is the third Democratic debates. Senator Becker. Now, I am Asian, so I know a lot of doctors. And they tell me that they spend a lot of time on paperwork, avoiding being sued, and yeah. navigating the insurance. I, I really do not appreciate that. It really feels like he... Nobody is, laughed either. Which I loved. <laughs> I really, I was very pleasantly surprised by that. Like, even this white crowd in Houston is like a hard pass on this. Do you think that he he's doing that intentionally to cater to this like broader white electorate like kind of you know like doing that dance to you know like endear himself to a broader electorate or do you think it emanates from an ignorance about race and the history of these stereotypes and the whole model minority thing or do you think it's both i think it's both i don't know that he is consciously thinking things like "Ooh, white people well, I will be palatable to white people if I lean into the stereotype they have about us. Like, I don't think that's conscious. I think he thinks it's maybe funny um, and like is like a fun gimmick. Um, and that is like, you know, going to be make him interesting and, you know, make white people give him a second look. But in choosing that, he illustrates that he has a very thin understanding of race. What do you think about this? Yeah, like the whole thing about race. So I listened to his interview on The Daily. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he came off, I think for 90% of it, pretty well. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think he's, um, I think his diagnosis of why Trump won the election is wrong. Mm -hmm. I tend, well, I mean, that's just my opinion. But from my framework, I tend to have more of a cultural framework mm -hmm. than an that it's economic not just one. economics, yeah. Right, right. I mean, these things are all kind of like tied in together. So I don't want to say sure. it's one or the other. I'm just saying that mm -hmm. I tend to read things from a cultural perspective. And so from that perspective, I, I don't think like his whole thing about, you know, a manufacturing base being, you know, disenfranchised is the reason why Trump won in and of mm -hmm. itself. I'm sure it played a factor. But he's just mm -hmm. like, this is this is the reason. And so I don't think I buy that. But other than right. that, like he, you know, you know, like I agree with you. I think universal basic income is an important thing to talk about. Um, it's an in UBI is interesting to me because, yes, it is. It borrows from more socialist ideas, but it's fused also with sort of, you know, a very conservative notion that we we can all pick ourselves up from the bootstraps. Yes. Totally, so totally. these things are, this is kind of a new framing and a new sort of thing that he's kind of bringing forward. And I think it's important to kind of have that as a discussion point. And I'm so, so I'm glad that he's kind of like his candidacy is like pushing that to the discussion. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's zero evidence that UBI works because, you know, it hasn't been done. I mean, I think they're doing it in Sweden. They're trying it Stockton right now. Right, so, right. Yeah but like still highly experimental. Experimental. So let's see how it goes. But I, I think theoretically, like he presented it well. I think he speaks plainly and I, I can see why people find him appealing. Mm -hmm. And then to the Daily's credit, the people interviewing him, they were like, okay, let's let's talk about it American context because American context is, you know, you know, you have to, you have to understand race. And so mm -hmm. Andrew Yang's impulse was to, talk about race through the lens of universal basic income. And mm -hmm. I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was just so like, it, to me, you know, I asked you earlier, do you think it comes out of ignorance? At, listening to that, 
made me realize that he doesn't actually know what he's talking about when it comes to race, right? Mm-hmm. So he he mm-hmm. still thinks like um, I think he understands that there are systemic issues that have oppressed people. I think he understands that, but he mm-hmm. still thinks it's just this economics thing where if you just give people cash, they'll be able to deal with these systemic barriers. Um, you know, they'll be able to rise above it, mm-hmm. right? And it's it's just I mean, for me, I'm not going to say he's wrong. I just think that he's not seeing it the way I see it. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. And so that that made you know that kind of like framed my understanding of his like his you know very flippant comments about you know the you know being like uh, Asian. So I know a lot of doctors because that to me is like you don't. I don't think he understands the history of that. You know, mm-hmm. correct. Uh, you know, correct. like these stereotypes are not like some harmless thing that's actually positive for Asian people. It was used, you know, to kind of put a wedge between communities of color. So my understanding of race is always about, you know, the workings of white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. And so this the history of these stereotypes are used to uphold that. And when I see, mm-hmm. you know, the first you know, Asian American like very prominent mainstream candidate that fails to understand that history, number 1, and then leans into it, contributes to it. Mm-hmm. I'm just like you're just kind of affirming why I'm not enthusiastic about your campaign. Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think that like his understanding of race is where a lot of Asian Americans are when it comes to race, right? Like Asian American on the surface, the model minority myth is very appealing to us, right? Because it's like, we're the good minorities. We work hard and, you know, we're financially successful and blah, blah, blah. But like, you can't have a model minority without a problem minority. Mm -hmm. And that is the context in which this phrase came about. Like Asians did not invent this term about ourselves. It was like a white sociologist in the New York Times who wrote this article that was like, look at these Asian people. They're so hardworking and they do so well for themselves. Unlike these other communities of color, right? Like we were, the model minority myth was invented as a way of shaming black and brown communities for not being able to what, like pull themselves up by their bootstraps over the systemic, the historical systemic obstacles that they've experienced here. Right. Right. So I, the fact that he leans so heavily into this model minority is like, dude, you don't know what you're doing. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not something that's good for America. It's not good for black and brown communities. Certainly it's not even good for our community. Right. Because it like, totally screws the many Asian Americans who don't fit the model minority and people think that like they don't need any help when reality is that like Asian Americans have like huge like huge like our rates of poverty are like very very high and like there's all of these issues around literacy and pay discrepancies and all these things um and at the end of the day it pits communities of color against each other while white supremacy is left unchallenged right and Andrew Yang it's like it's not just ignorance of the history of this, but it fits his ideology because, you know, as we mentioned, UBI, like a component of it is this whole bootstrap thing. And it's, it's ignoring like, you know, all of these institutional, think about the courts, think about like zoning laws, think about redlining, redlining, think about all of these mechanisms that were built historically since like the beginning, you know, to, Mm -hmm. um, to create basically racial pools of labor like cheap labor basically and Mm -hmm. you're going to ignore all of that you know to say 
if we just transfer money and cash, mm -hmm. people are going to be able to, you know, like, you know, pull themselves up and that's it. You know, like we no need to just no need to deal with all the all of these oppressive structures that are around them. No need to acknowledge the history of that. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, like model minority, it fits. It fits within like what his what he's trying to sell. So I, I yes. don't like I, I do think it's somewhat ignorance, but I think it's also uh, ideological in a way, which is which is another component that really, really rankles me. Um, this slogan, not left, not right, forward, like that's like the mantra of his campaign, which is like another word mm -hmm. for this isn't politics. This is just like logic. And this is just, you know, technocrat. And this is just we're above the political fray. It's like, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. You're ideological, just like everybody else, you know, and you're fighting for a position. Mm -hmm. So don't try to present yourself as some like high minded, you know, even keeled you know, listen to all sides, kind of like centrist, you know, because mm -hmm. no, no. Like if you really critically examine your like positions, you have an ideology just like all of these other people trying to push theirs, you know? Um, I'm curious if you have had any experience with his supporters, colloquial called, colloquially called the Yang Gang. Ah, the Yang Gang. I think the Yang Gang is the new Bernie bro of 2020. Mm -hmm. And if I can describe it, um, if I can use a sports analogy, this this is what kind of rubs me the wrong way, right? And this is going to make me sound kind of like elitist, but I don't care. So I love baseball. I've been watching baseball since like the mid mid 90s, right? Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, I know a lot about it because I've been in it, right? Mm -hmm. This feels like to me like, like I'm watching a baseball game and this person mm -hmm. who knows nothing about baseball coming in mm -hmm. and seeing like, you know, 10 minutes of a, of a thing and then mm -hmm. talking about it like they're the experts. Like you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like you think you know, mm -hmm. but you don't know. That's kind of how I feel. Um, not about all Yang Gang people. Like I think a lot of people are like very, very, well-versed in politics and they know but I think the comments that I've seen and you know I think it's a little bit of a hunger for like something different but yeah it's like this whole thing about not really knowing the origins of these things it's like you're gonna really comment yeah. on him like and his understanding about race without without really understanding the history of it yourself you know hmm. and you're making these arguments that seem like so even keeled and like above the political fray but like I can see that the basis of what you're saying is is political. Like you're you're saying these things like you're not, but you are. Um, but it reminds me a little bit about what happened with the Bernie Bros. Is that they want to present themselves as like these really like hey like we're just really on fire for our candidate, you know. And then like mm -hmm. one person will be like, oh I don't like Bernie, and they'd be like, oh that's a cool opinion. Here's twenty articles to prove why you're wrong. But you know you know click it if you want. Click it if you want. <laughs> Totally. Oh, uh, and it's like they're so hurt when their like candidate is like being criticized, and it's like, come on, mm -hmm. come on. Like, I'm glad you support your candidate, but you know, you are you are just in the mud like the rest of us. You know, not above it. Yeah, that's how I feel. Have you had any encounters with the Yang Gang folks? I have mm -hmm. some more friendly than others. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's a real evangelism, evangelistic vibe in all of the conversations. Right, right, right. Really on, on fire for Yang yeah. or like subtly slipping me like tracts <laughs> over text asking me what I think about these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And generally I haven't had any like terribly negative experiences, but I think for me, what is frustrating is that a lot of the people that I've engaged with, when I push back on any policy point, or when I get to when it gets to the point where I, it's very clear that like I am not on board for the reasons that I mentioned or because of policy differences I have with him, often the conversation gets to it's so important to have an Asian American person in the White House because representation, right? And I'm like, I trust me, like you do not need to preach to me about the importance of representation. Like I grew up, I was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Like do not mm -hmm. fucking tell me that, <laughs> that I need a lesson on representation. But um, the idea that like, the, the idea, it's almost like this implicit, like if you don't vote for him, you are betraying Asian America. Like, don't you want to see one of us succeed? Like there's a real kind of like race traitor vibe that I get from some of these folks. Like we are as like, like as Asian Americans, we are obligated to vote for him. And like that I think is incredibly mm -hmm. problematic because yes, I would love to see an Asian American person in the white house, of course, but I don't want just any Asian American person in the White House. Uh, I want somebody who has like a deep and thorough understanding mm -hmm. of race and the racial landscape of America and how Asian Americans fit mm -hmm. in it, um, because that has everything to do with like how they understand other communities of color and white supremacy and all those other things we've talked about. Um, so, yeah, I think that is what ultimately makes me very uncomfortable is that these they're usually men. Most of the men, I, most of the Yang Gangers I've encountered have been men. It's this real sense of like, you owe it to the culture. And I'm like, I actually think that's incredibly mm -hmm. lazy. Mm -hmm. To vote for Yang just because he's Asian is incredibly right. lazy. Right. It's a different story if this guy, you know, came with an understanding of the community and like where where we are. But that's not that's not what he's running on, right? He he's he's erasing yeah. all of those things. He's like. He's like, mm -hmm. basically what I'm getting is that these things are frivolous or, you know, like he'll say it's important, but in his mind, these things are frivolous. These cultural things will take a backseat as long as we, you know, uh, you know, as long as this UBI thing goes forward and we deal with these economics, mm -hmm. then all that stuff will come into line. Right. And it's like a very, very common thing that I've seen, but it's like a different perspective, right? Like I, you know, I tend to think that the origin of these things are cultural, racial, like, you know, there's this emotional aspect of it, right? We don't live in just a rational economic world, right? Um, and, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. we have to, we have to look at both. We have to look at these things uh, in tandem. Um, so when he's just kind of like mm -hmm. sweeping these things under the rug, that's not the Asian American that I would support. Um, just to echo your earlier point, like, I'm glad that, you know, to the extent that you know, he's part of our community that he's, you know, getting out there and, you know, putting his ideas on the on the table. So, you know, I don't want to come off as like, I'm just critical and I hate this guy. I, that's not how I feel at all. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Like in the interviews that I've heard of him, he seems like a very likable person. Like, yeah, I'm not saying I dislike him as a person, but like, I just am very uncomfortable with an Asian American candidate who at every turn puts himself in a position to make himself palatable to white people, right? Mm -hmm. 
the leaning mm. into the math, the leaning into the doctor, his economic explanation, his explanation for the last election is purely economic. So white people are like, yeah, that's why I voted for Trump. It's yes. not because I'm racist. It's because of economics. <laughs> right. And this and the SNL thing is another example of that. Right. Yeah. Like he played the part of what white people want people of color to be. Yeah. They want people of color to be quick to forgive without yeah. any requiring any self-reflection or actual work on the right. part of the white offender. 100%. So yeah. at every turn, he is making himself this like very palatable person of color, which I mean, I get it. Asian Americans have been doing that for centuries. Like it has it has facilitated our survival in this country. I get it. But at the same time, it is a capitulation to white supremacy and it also gives an easy it's just you know he just becomes a person who white people can point to and be like how come you activists how come you angry people can't be more like him exactly the model when minority those, correct correct yeah. embodied this is just uh, evidence this is um proof in the pudding that top five will not shy away from political topics we're correct. gonna lean in yes and that's i mean that's kind of how we started, right? Absolutely. We talked Absolutely. we got it. We talked we started talking about politics. And so we will be talking about the fourth debate in detail, I, I believe is the plan. And you know you know what's crazy? This isn't even gonna be the most controversial thing that we talk about in this episode. Because our, correct. <laughs> our top five I don't know, like we we I think our first three weeks we like we try to make friends and we're just going to make enemies now. And here we go. Yeah. So our top five, <laughs> our top five list. Okay. Do you want to describe it? Do you want to describe it? Sure. This week we're talking about things everyone loves that we do not. Last, yeah. I think when we posed this in the last episode, we said things everyone loves that we despise. And then we realized it's like too strong a word because yeah. we're not really like despisers. We're not um, despisers. Just, no, just things that like everyone else is, super into and we're like not that's it not on the train <laughs> not on the train correct so by by definition this is a controversial list yes and uh we invite all the vitriol that's coming our way we invite it and just comment and just let's have let's have at it let's have at yeah. it yeah okay but i'm gonna yeah. start light i'm gonna start light okay? okay not not that controversial okay my number five is brunch Oh, not controversial. <laughs> are, are we are we having problems, the two of us now? <laughs> oh, no, I want to hear. I want to hear. All right. So brunch. Okay. So uh -huh. it's not that I'm opposed to brunch. It's that okay. I think it's ridiculous that we're paying all of a sudden $15 for eggs. It's just, I mean, like, it, it, it's like, it's a marketing ploy, you know? It's like at, at any other time. It's, you know, reasonable price for eggs and your breakfast. And all of a sudden uh -huh. you put the brunch label on it. Uh -huh. And all of a sudden it's like you're paying $30 and drinking alcohol in the morning when it's like, you know, <laughs> like breaking all social norms. But I just never got it. I never got it. It's just another breakfast to me. And I'm like, damn it. Why is this so expensive? Um, That's fair. That's yeah. Fair critique. You know, as an addendum to this, pancakes. Uh -huh. Pancakes, I'm not a huge uh -huh. fan of pancakes. And that's crazy because my, my parents own an IHOP. And I've grown up I was going to say, IHOP. you yeah. are like, shots fired. Yeah, yeah. Pancakes are Ooh, pancakes. Pancakes raised you. They raised me. They paid for my college tuition. 
<laughs> they did. And I should be—I—I I should literally owe my life to pancakes. But Dude. I find pancakes dry and a race against the clock because once that syrup goes in, you got like you got True. a minute before it. before it gets soggy. Mm-hmm. So I don't like that. T- I don't like that time pressure in the morning. I don't like it. Yeah, especially because you're paying like fourteen dollars for those pancakes. So you want to like because it's at brunch, right? You want to like <laughs> talk with your friend with a cup of coffee, but instead, I'm it's like a race against the clock. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna hesitate on this one because I think my number four might be the most controversial. Okay. So I'm gonna preface this to say that I like this person. I like him. <laughs> I like him a lot. You know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Anthony Bourdain. Oh, controversial indeed. Yes. Wow. I like him. He's a good writer. He's a good writer. But, you know, I was never a fan. First of all, I was never a fan of his, um, the title of his show, Parts Unknown. Uh huh. The thing is, we have been charmed by Anthony Bourdain. Like, he Uh is charismatic, you know, and he does things the right way in general, right? Yes. Yes. But when we take a step back, this is still this is still a white person introducing exotic foods. Yes. You know, which is not exotic at all. Right. We've known these parts. We these are not parts unknown. These are parts known fine by the majority of people in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. And his it's not so much him, it's his impact. So like I go to K-Town and I go to like this Sundubu place, which is like my favorite in K-Town. And this is a place that's like, it's the Ajmas, the, you know, it's just like just your local haunts. It wasn't even the best Sundubu place in K-Town, right? Mm. All the Koreans know where the number one spot was back in the day. This was not it. Mm. This was just a red of the mill place. But uh-huh. Anthony Bourdain went there and decreed that this is K-Town and this is Sundubu. And now when I go there, I can't get a seat. Yeah. Yeah. I can't get a seat there. And I think True. it's ridiculous. I went there with my parents and I'm sitting next to hipsters eating sundubu and it's not a good look. So those ajumas are rich now though. They're rich, you know, and, and good for them. And good for them. They yeah. hustled. But it, it is an odd look because you know, when you see those ajumas, it's like that's the that's the authentic place that Korean people can go. Like mm-hmm. you other folks can go pay twenty dollars for some subpar Korean food and you know be served by, you know cool Koreans with tattoos and stuff, but I'm going to go to the Hajima spot, right? And now I can't go to that spot anymore because of Anthony Bourdain. It's such a fine line between like exposure and it is overexposure, like fetishizing, right. you know what I mean? Right. Because like you, you, I, I want those Hajimas to do well and I want other people to see that food and know that it's delicious and not, you know, make fun of kids who bring it to lunch. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then. He, he stirs up some complicated feelings in me for sure. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Okay, good. Oh, thank God. I got over that one. All right, number three. These these are all going to be a lot easier from now on. Number three, um, duty-free stores at airports. Oh, say more, say more. Okay, like it's it's a ripoff. It's it's still, it's like, it's, have you noticed that you're actually paying more for these items than you would? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, you're not paying in taxes. That's nice, but... But you're like, you know, like I compare these prices, I, I compare this item and then what I get in a store with taxes and it's more at the duty free shop. Yeah, Not a good deal. Yeah. Fair. Exploited Fair it too, because, you know, you're like in an airport, you have nothing to do. So you're just going to drop all this <laughs> money on like. <sighs> Man, can I tell you, this is a tangent. I have spent a lot of time in duty free stores because Detroit um, 
is a an entry point to Canada, right? Yeah. And all the best Chinese food in the area is in Canada. So we used to drive all the time. It's, it's like a half an hour drive to get to Canada. Um, but like every time we cross the border, there's like a duty-free shop like right yeah. after you pay. And you got to go in. Every freaking time. <laughs> and I was like, we come here like once a month. Why are we here again? And there is nothing for a child to do at a duty-free shop. Literally nothing. It's just cigarettes and booze and perfume, right? <sighs> and I just like, I just, God, those were like the longest hours of my childhood. Because right. there was nothing. Not even magazines, right? Not even like a People magazine. Nothing. And get, so. don't get me wrong. I, you know, the reason I hate it is because I get suckered in. I'm at duty-free all the time. And I always buy something. And I hate myself <laughs> for it. Damn you, dude, because it's all well lit and well stocked. Yeah, totally. The boxes totally. look really nice. So Damn you, duty free. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. Okay, in a similar vein, my number two is Restaurant Week. Restaurant Week. Oh, hey. Okay. Restaurant Week is a scam. Like, okay, so you get to go to this really nice restaurant that you normally wouldn't go, and you think mm. you're getting this deal, and you get the bill, and uh-huh. it's like, a hundred dollars for two people yeah and totally. and you just sign it because you're like ha 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 it's restaurant week i i'm sure i got a good deal out of this you didn't you got scammed yeah because what True. they do it's- is they like take five dollars off the main but they force uh-huh. you to get you know your own appetizer your own entree uh-huh. and your own dessert nobody eats that way uh-huh. nobody orders that way like I'm done after the appetizer. Yeah. That's how you get on like you pay a hundred dollars and like these restaurants are making cash over fist. It's not a deal. Not a deal. This is the reason why restaurants participate in restaurant week is because it's not a deal. It's because they make money. Because they make tons of money and all these people are like, it's restaurant week. I'm gonna <laughs> Nonsense. All right, my number one. Traveling. <gasps> yeah. Yeah, this is particular to me. And don't get me wrong, when I go to a place that I've never been, it's still a nice feeling. It's still like enjoyable. What I'm saying is none of those enjoyable pros are outweighed by the cons of traveling for me anymore. The balance has, has, has scaled the other way. And it all has to do with these flights. I cannot, I, I like. I have, tra- I have feelings of anxiety when I have to go on, on flights now. Not because I think I'm going to die or anything, but because I have to pack. And because mm-hmm. I have to go through security and I have to like take off all my clothes and I have to like get there on time. And then I have to like suck in recycled air for 13 hours in a tiny yeah. little seat, right? Which is like a torture device, isn't it? Yeah. And a cesspool of bacteria as well. Oh my gosh. So around like hour, if you know, if you've traveled like long distances, everyone knows that hour seven is when human beings just devolve into a, a puddle of like goo, basically. Like we just... <laughs> <sighs> like the the shoes start coming off, the odors start rising. Oh God, you know, you're so gross at that point. You're like sweating, and you're just sucking in recycled air, and you're eating this food that's not food. Mm-hmm. Um. So my gasp was not because I was horrified that you hate traveling, even mm-hmm. though I can see why somebody might think that. But it's more because you're a professional traveler. <laughs> Like Those things probably go hand in hand, though. That's probably what it is. It's a non-negotiable part of your work. Yes, that's true. But like, in order to do your job, you have to do the number one thing on your list of things that everyone loves, and you just and you don't. 
Do you remember in one of these old episodes of Friends where Rachel um, kind of has a crush on this um, OBGYN doctor? And he's trying to explain, like, why he's single. And he's just like, well, let me explain. Like, if you're, you know, you're a waitress. So <laughs> do you ever feel like if you see another cup of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is for me. If I see another plane, you know, yeah. because it is my job. Like, I, I yeah. do have to travel a lot for work. So... Um, that's precisely why, you know, if I was just like a, you know, you know, travel was not part of my work, then yeah, I would still love getting on planes and stuff. Yeah. 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 That is so fascinating. I did not see that coming. I want to hear your top five. Okay. Number five is, and I want to, okay. I want to preface all this by saying that these are all just personal preferences. If you enjoy any or all of these things, no judgment. These are just not for me. So that's how I, I started. That's how I started my top five too, Liz. And then, and then yeah. I went in and then I went in on these things. <laughs> yeah. uh, number five is the use of gifts in conversation, like text and message conversations. Everyone does this who I talk to. So, um, uh, no judgment. I still love you as people, but for me personally, I'm like, if I have words, I don't know why I would rely on a GIF. You know what I mean? There's a few that capture things that you cannot express in words, right? Like that one of Homer backing slowly into the bushes. <laughs> like I really like that one. That one's very useful. But otherwise, I'm like, you got all these letters, you got all these words at your disposal, you got all these emojis, if you want to go that route. And like the idea that you would completely outsource all of your verbal and nonverbal communication to a picture that's been used like millions of times before. It just feels like, you know, I don't know, like you can be like a little bit, it just, it, it feels like outsourcing communication and like you can be yourself and more original by using words with letters you say gif you, you say gif i say jif i do say gif i know i know jif is the peanut butter you know what i mean okay so i i say gif to differentiate all right i also think it's the correct way to say it but that's i actually think that the way you say it might be the right way but tomato tomato um number four is the lord of the rings trilogy and its cousins harry potter and game of thrones Woo! wow yeah just the whole fantasy genre, I it, I have no interest. Okay. I have seen zero of the Lord of the Rings movies. I saw one Harry Potter movie and read one of the books. I've seen zero episodes of Game of Thrones, even though my spouse, my spouse has seen every single one. I just, I can't get into it at all. Like, I love good storytelling and I love searing social commentary. But like, there is so much interesting stuff happening in the world. Yeah. Right. Like as exhibited by like how many stories we had to talk about today that we didn't even get to yeah. that. I'm like, I don't know why I would ever go somewhere else. You know what I mean? And like, why would I talk about these fake problems with these fake people when like I will never have enough time to deal with like the real stories that are happening here? Fair enough. You know? Fair enough. I also feel like fantasy is like incredibly white and I'm like, how is it that we have so little room for people of color that like when we're done with white stories in the real world, we have to go make up stories about white people? Like, could we just not, can we just tell a few more stories about real people of color in the real world? I, I wish, you know, now that, now I wish you were a fantasy enthusiast because that, that is a niche that needs to be filled. Uh, fantasy stories of color. 
which is also confusing because some people are like there's plenty of color there's blue people there's green people and i'm like okay okay <laughs> so anyway i just feel like we could reprioritize this a little bit okay so that's my number four uh my number three is drinking alcohol whoa no judgment to anybody who does this is not like a morality thing i just i think it tastes like shit man wow all all alcohol yeah. wine beer all, all of it i've never gotten over the taste and people are people like especially when i was younger they're like oh you'll get over it and i was like why would i want to do that when i would be happier with a ginger beer and it would cost way less money right you probably have net about thirty thousand dollars more than I do, based purely on this. That's that. That's possible. Yeah, <laughs> I could have a down payment on so. a house if I just cut down. <laughs> if only. I think too, like, there's never been anything like appealing about it because, like, my dad loves alcohol, and it was always this thing that, like, my uncool dad did. You know what I mean? Like, for some people, it's like, oh, you get to college, and you've never been allowed to try it, and it's like rebellious and sexy, and like, it just never had that appeal for me. Either. <laughs> okay, so. fair enough. Yeah. But the cool thing about being in your mid thirties is that like now some of my friends are like done drinking. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Do you have any friends who have like quit? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's my number three. Um, number two is wearing makeup. Mm. Again, no judgment if you do, but I do not. There was a time of my life when I was like very interested in it, but my parents adamantly refused and then by the time I was old enough to be interested in it, I was like, I realized like, this is kind of like a time commitment, right? Like if you wear makeup on the regular, like you have to commit to wearing it every day because if you don't, on the days that you don't, people are like, are you okay? You look sick, <laughs> you know? Uh, and this comes a lot from like guys who just don't know, right? Like we just don't Correct. have Correct, well-meaning people. Yeah, it's like, are you okay? Yeah, you look really tired. <laughs> so it's this like big time commitment. And I was like, I don't have time for this. And it's also very restrictive. Like you can't touch your face. You have to be careful about what you eat. You have to, you can't cry. You know what I mean? Like you just have to like, you just like, I don't feel like you can be your full self and like maintain that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, I think I would much rather just like wear it on special occasions and have people be like, oh, you look really nice as opposed to wear it all the time. And then like the day that I can't wear it, people be like, what's wrong with you? So you do, you, know? you do wear it on special occasions. I did. Yeah. And then I, uh, I lost, I was uh, coordinating a wedding and I lost all the very few pieces that I had yeah. and I haven't worn it since then in like six years. Okay. And it, I, you know, I, I feel fine about it. And maybe my main critique of it at this point is like, I just the whole like philosophy undergirding mm -hmm. the makeup industry is like this messaging that like women's faces are not good enough the way they are when they wake up in the morning. Right. You know what I mean? Like the face that you were given is not good enough. And I know that the counter is like, oh, no, it's fun, whatever. I'm like, OK, cool. That's great. And if you like if you wear it because it's fun, that's great. But like, how come it's not marketed to men mm -hmm. then? Like, how come men? can wake up in whatever slovenly state they wake up in and go to work and it's considered yeah. fine and professional and like, you know yeah. what I mean? So until makeup is like marketed at men in the same way it is at women, like, right. no thanks, right. hard pass. And I'm surprised that, in, you know, in our 
like feminist discourses, this doesn't come. I mean, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. But it's like it it, it doesn't even scratch the surface of this industry, this billion billion dollar in, like billions of dollars of industry, right? Yeah. Because it's really not that difficult of a critique. It's not like you need like you need to be Judith Butler to understand what's going right. on here. Right? Correct. Like it's just like one step away to be like, yeah, this is actually built on patriarchy. Yes, exactly. Done, and right? I feel like so. high high heels get this criticism. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I think those are even those are like very even very uncomfortable. So like right. I think more women are willing to like take shots at that. But I'm like I feel like makeup. You know, got to think mm-hmm, about this. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. that's a good one. Okay, and my number one is the enneagram. I mm. feel some trepidation saying this because <laughs> people swear by the enneagram. Here it comes. Um, I could just see our comment thread. <laughs> it's going to be like, of course you would say that, Liz. You're an Enneagram 4. Of course, of course you would. 100% what's going to happen, yes. Actually, <laughs> the Enneagram has me pegged at a 2, which is a people pleaser. So take that. Um, yeah, there you go. Taking shots. Yes. So, okay. So for those, for if you live under a rock and you don't know what the Enneagram is, it's this like pop personality test where like, you know, people, all people are one of nine types they're like arranged around a circle and you know you also have some traits of the type to like one of the types to your sides and when you're stressed you go to a different one blah 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 um it's super popular right now for reasons i can't quite understand but i think it's just one of those like fad pop personality things but like as somebody who is a who was at one point a professional psychologist like there's no science behind this right like the idea that the, all the complexity of humanity can be parsed into nine categories is like kind of bonkers. And I appreciate that the Enneagram like encourages self-reflection. It gives some people a vocabulary for how they operate in the world. That's great. Um, maybe even more importantly, it helps people understand that differences are not better or worse. They're just different. And like, you know, they encourage trying to find ways to communicate across difference right okay so for though it has some utility but like people take this so seriously right like i once somebody once asked me like i have a business partner and they're like what's her enneagram like oh she's a seven and i'm a two and they're like oh my gosh twos and sevens don't aren't a good match and i was just like (laughs) what the hell dude like we are grown ass people who have conversations all the time about our relationship like we work great together it's fine like just i feel like people ascribe so much meaning to it that i just want to be like yo right it's not science there's literally no research behind it and so yeah again as much as if it gives you some vocabulary for how you work in the world and it like helps you like you know work more effectively on teams and think about differences with your partner. Like, that's great. But like, it's, it's not science. Did you say you were an Enneagram too? Yeah. I I mean, I think I I'm equal parts one and two. Yeah. So, but I just say two because I think that's easier. I'm a two as well. I think I have, I think I know this, this about you. I think we also have the same Myers-Briggs if I'm not mistaken. Is it the same one as Obama? It's the same one as president Obama. Oh my gosh. The universe. The universe. We're also the year of the pig for those for the for the Asians among us. What the heck? The same. This is starting no. to get a little wow. 
So on three fairly meaningless measures. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I can already imagine our comment thread because Liz, your top five brought brought the heat. Oh, that's very generous of you. I liked your. Um, That was a. Thank you, thank you. That was a really fun top five. That was. What should we do next? Um, you know, let's let's go with um, top five TV shows of all time. How about that? I love that. <laughs> well, as usual, this was fun. This was fun. Let's do it again. Let's do it again in two weeks. See you then.